Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome to the Mike Smith Show podcast. This is your one-stop shop for all the latest happenings in B.C. From breaking news and developing stories to giving the big headlines a closer look, the Mike Smith Show is here to keep you dialed in and up to date. Let's begin. We start with British Columbia accelerating their targets now to transition to 100% EVs, zero-emission vehicles. The provincial government has moved up the date here now. 2035, 2035, 100% emission-free vehicle sales in British Columbia. That is now the target. They've moved that up five years. It used to be 2040. Is this possible now? Got Blair Qualley standing by to discuss. First, have a listen to this. You're going to hear the uh, energy minister here, Josie Osborne, also Victoria car dealer, Brandon Cott. It'll put us on track to meeting our 100% sales target by 2035. I would say that that's very aggressive. Very aggressive? Yeah. Is it possible to even meet these targets? Let's discuss it now with my guest, Blair Qualley. Blair is the president and CEO of the New Car Dealers Association of British Columbia. Blair, thank you for coming on today. Good morning, Mike. Thanks for having me. You bet. I appreciate it a lot. And you've expressed some concern here about this going forward. 2035 for 100% EV sales in, in B.C., Man, oh man, that sounds yeah aggressive. That sounds very optimistic. What do you think of that target date? Well, we've known uh, you know government was looking at these targets for a while, and they've just now uh, put legislation in to entrench them. Uh, I concur with my one one of our members who was just uh, quoted there saying that yeah, it's very aggressive. Uh, they've moved it moved it up uh, uh, five years, which uh, you know the first. One of these targets is 2026, uh, and it's 26%. Then in 2030, we're supposed to have 90% sales uh, of EVs, and then, of course, 2035 is 100%. So, yeah, yeah. that's coming, coming pretty quick at us. Yeah, for sure. What is the percentage of, of uh, EV sales right now? Uh, we're just over 21%. So okay. uh, we're, we're doing pretty well in British Columbia. I mean, uh, BC's new car dealers stepped up, goodness, uh, 12 years ago uh, when government asked us to help them out with the clean uh, BC Go Electric rebate program, which we uh, are privileged to administer. Uh, but, uh, you know, we've made 20%, over 20%, and that's great news. But, yeah. you know, these targets are coming up pretty quick. Yeah, that's actually higher than I thought it would be. So I guess that is pretty pretty good. But then when you start thinking about, well, it's got to be 90% by 2030, 100% by 2035. Is that, like in your mind as a guy who's on the front lines of this business, or is that possible? Well, I, I think if you ask most of our members, and, and they talk to their customers all of the time, I think the consensus is this is, way, you know, this is going too far too fast. Um, everybody, I think, you know, in our, uh, 
industry shares uh, with government the desire to reduce greenhouse gases. And as I said, 12 years ago, we stepped up and said, hey, we'll be part of this and, and work with you on the rebate program. Uh, but uh, our world is going through all sorts of different things at the moment. We've gone through a pandemic. We've had all sorts of supply chain issues. Inflation rates are really high. Uh, folks are facing affordability challenges like crazy. And, and all of these factors will come into play on, on what the demand is for these vehicles. And these mandates are only on the supply side. They don't do anything to help encourage demand. Yeah, and let's talk about what happens if we don't meet these targets, because the government is talking about a, a penalties, right? So if you if we don't meet these targets, who there would be fines and penalties? Is that correct? Yeah, and, and that's a big concern to our members, uh, not only just the supply chain challenges and all the other issues, uh, you know, facing up to $20,000 uh, penalty per vehicle outside of these targets. Um, wow. You know, adding twenty grand to a... <laughs> The purchase of a vehicle these days, uh, when we're already challenged on the affordability side, is is pretty steep. Holy smokes! Twenty thousand dollar penalty per vehicle. Who would who would pay that? Would that be the the buyer would have to pay that, or the, or the automaker well, or the car dealer? The manufacturer uh, has the okay. penalty and would have to pay that, and of course uh, would have to you know no choice but pass that on in the price of the vehicle. Uh, to recover that cost. So, uh, you know, EVs already are, you know, uh, pretty expensive uh, for folks. And and quite frankly, a lot of cars are these days. The average price of a vehicle in the country now is $66,000 for a new vehicle. So you add $20,000 to that, it's uh, it's pretty steep. Yeah, what is the average price of an an electric uh, EV vehicle right now? 73 or so thousand dollars, yeah. Boy, that, that's a lot. Now, if they start applying these penalties, if we don't meet these very aggressive targets here, you, your concern is what? That could drive up these prices even higher? Absolutely. Uh, you know, uh, of course, that cost will be added to uh, the price of, you know, all vehicles, not uh, just EVs. And, uh, you know, manufacturers are going to be facing a, a real tough question of, you know, in order to meet these arbitrary ratios, are we going to have to reduce the total number of vehicles we sell in the province to be able to meet the target of, of let's say, 26% or 90, you know, 90% in 2030? So yeah. um, that we've all seen what happened during COVID when uh, vehicle availability was restricted. Prices of everything went up, and uh, we're afraid that we're going to be in the same kind of situation while manufacturers try and work their way through this. Speaking to Blair Qualley, New Car Dealers Association of British Columbia, talking about the new aggressive targets here for 100% electric vehicle sales in British Columbia, 100% EV sales by 2035, and there will be penalties if the industry does not make these targets. So could this potentially totally backfire here because if you start applying these penalties if we don't meet these targets and these targets do seem a little unrealistic to me too if you start applying penalties and that drives up the cost of vehicles i i imagine some of these automakers would pass on those costs to purchasers of gas-powered vehicles and electric vehicles too right like they would spread around the pain i imagine no this would uh, absolutely impact the price of of all vehicles yeah the price of new vehicles go up, 
people start looking at used vehicles and that demand starts raising the price of used vehicles and and so in a in a world of affordability challenges this is a, this is a big problem right so if we if this ends up driving up the cost of electric vehicles i mean the cost is already a barrier for people getting into an ev now could this make it even potentially even worse uh, absolutely, that potential is is there. Uh, you know, fortunately, uh, BC has uh, incentive rebates for electric vehicles, and and so do the federal government. But that's not going to bridge uh, bridge the price gap that exists at the moment. Okay, what is your Blair? What final question for you? What is your message yep. to government here? I mean, the government obviously very aggressively moving forward with this. What are you telling them? Well, I, you know, we have a, a good relationship with the minister and, and we uh, interact with her and, and give her feedback all the time. But we're continuing to encourage the government to leave the door open for a more flexible approach to these uh, regulations and mandates. And and there's a lot of unintended consequences that can come from this. So I, I hope the minister and government will uh, continue to work with the industry uh, to provide some flexibility to uh, allow this to work. Because we all what, what is what goal. does that mean? What what kind of flexibility you're looking for? You maybe scale back some of these targets, give it a longer well, longer runway to get them, or sure. I I mean you know there's a number of issues. You know there's the whole question of of rural British Columbia and the availability of charging infrastructure yeah. there and uh, low income folks uh, that may have some challenges with uh, purchasing these vehicles to meet these targets. I, I think government uh, could, you know, look at doing some flexible rules around where these apply and in what periods of time uh, over the next while. Blair, thank you for coming on with your thoughts on this today. I appreciate it. Thanks so much, Mike. Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at Armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. Talk about the Airbnb crackdown here in British Columbia. Now, did the government go too far here? My guest is John Rustad. John is the leader of the Conservative Party of British Columbia, and I'm very pleased to welcome him back to the studio. John, thank you for coming on. Mike, thanks for having me in this morning. Okay, let's listen to Premier David Eby here on why they've decided to do this, bringing down tough new restrictions on Airbnb and short-term rentals. Here's the Premier, then I'll get your thoughts. Without question. Uh, in British Columbia, short-term rentals have gotten out of control. Uh, we have a situation uh, in our province where uh, the top 10% of hosts account for 50% of the income for short-term rental operators. What do you think about his thoughts on this? Is it out of control? That's what he says. Well, I think what you're talking about really is that there is a failed policy by this government on housing period. 
whether it's on the rental policy or the housing policy, and they're looking for somebody to blame. Initially, it was for investors. Then it became speculators. Then it became you know, communities not doing the not doing the work. And now it is uh, Airbnbs. They're doing everything but pointing at themselves in terms of the failure that they have had on the housing file. And it has become a real crisis in this province. What has been the failure? Just not a- approving enough housing? Like you know, the, the housing the housing starts are dismal compared to our population growth here. Right. And so if you look at it and think, okay. Why is that the case? Yeah. What are they doing? So they put in restrictions uh, in terms of housing. They put in restrictions in terms of rentals. Nobody wants to build rental units. They aren't stepping up to the plate. They're not coming in and actually supporting communities for infrastructure like water and sewer. It's just been an utter failure. And they somehow believe that government should be the ones who are building houses. No, governments don't build houses. The private sector builds houses. Government needs to step in and be able to support affordable housing for the people that need it. But you have to be able to have a robust private sector investing in building housing. And we're not seeing that because this government has become a real problem. Okay, well, you've got EB saying that the reason they want to bring the hammer down on Airbnb is they want to free up these homes for people who to actually live in long term, actual British Columbia residents instead of short term rentals. Does that not make makes sense on the surface that a lot of there's a lot of homes here that are being operated basically like hotel rooms instead of being rented out to people who actually live here well you're right i mean so so that has become a problem but that's a symptom of a problem that the government has and so their approach is to take an authoritarian bully approach and to say nope sorry you can't do what you want to do with your private land municipalities deal with zoning. When you're talking about places like Kelowna or Penticton, they actually zone for, for Airbnb so that they can have additional tourism spots come in so they can boost the economy and, and help out you know, with, the, with the community. What you're talking about is a government that has completely lost touch with what the real problem is, which is their policies have failed on housing. Okay, when you mentioned telling people what to do with their private property, does that is that an important issue for you? Because I've heard this from some listeners. The government shouldn't tell me what to do with my own home, my own property. That's, I, I believe that entirely. I think that right. people ha- should have their rights, that people should have their property. So you don't think there should be any restrictions at all in Airbnbs? No, what I believe is that municipalities and the, the, have the authority and the ability to be able to zone. Yeah. They should be able to zone for what it, what they'd like to see within their communities, and that could include hotels, that include Airbnbs, that includes single housing, that includes multiple dwellings, that includes all kinds of things. That is the city's job. Now yeah. you've got a province that's coming in and saying, I want to take that away from you. I'm just going to take authoritarian approach and bully communities and say, no, you can't do this, and take away the rights of private property owners that were that are rightfully theirs mm-hmm. based on what zoning has been provided by a municipality. Yeah. Speaking to John Rustad, leader of the Conservative Party of British Columbia. Okay, speaking of Penticton, it's interesting to see. I spoke to the mayor of Penticton on the show yesterday who told me that, look, we're a little worried about this Airbnb crackdown. We're a tourist town here. The visitors love their Airbnb. This is where they want to stay. Have a listen to Michael Magnuson here, John. He is the uh, executive director of the Chamber of Commerce in Penticton about this uh, crackdown in short-term rentals. Let's listen. People that are staying in short-term rental facilities don't necessarily want to stay in a hotel. And while we do have beautiful hotels in and throughout the South Okanagan, uh, families or large groups often prefer to rent a house. You think he's got a point? He's got a very good point. And that's why the municipality has zoned for that. It's not like this is just the Wild West and people are just doing this anywhere, right? This is where zoning comes in. This is the where the authority of municipalities. But this government has no problem at all trampling on those authorities. We saw it in Surrey uh, in terms of, you know, instead of going to a referendum, just coming in and saying, you know, we know best. 
We've seen on it the with, policing issue. On the policing issue, yeah. we've yeah. seen it with parents. We've seen it with ag- on the agriculture sector and farmers. You know, we're seeing it across the board. The government is coming in and saying, "We know best. We are going to come in and we're going to force you to, to to live by the way they want to." That is not democracy, and certainly not the British Columbia I want to see. Do you think this could potentially backfire in terms of the housing supply? Because the Penticton mayor yesterday on the show told me something very interesting, and you and I were discussing this off air. He told me that there are some building housing projects being planned in Penticton where the developers were anticipating that some of them would be available to be rented out on Airbnb, like real estate investors would buy some of these units. Now the government's changed the rules, basically retroactively, and you've got some of these list, these builders saying, you know what, I don't think I want to build this project anymore because you've taken away this, Air- this Airbnb component of it. What do you think of that argument? Well, I, I think it's very valid, but I think it's, it's once again a symptom of a government and their approach that is actually exacerbating the problem of housing. There should be a very different approach that's come in, but government needs to set up and figure out how we actually encourage this, how we support communities, how we deal with the infrastructure, how we get this stuff done, as opposed to the, the approach they're taking. And it just goes to show they really have no clue how the economy works or how, or how housing works. What do you think about your, your former colleagues over at the, in the BC United Party here? Because they've put forward some uh, amendments, including, look, let people have one. Okay, so you could have one investment property on the side as an, you could run as an Airbnb separate from your principal residence. Like, let people have one. You know, what do you think of that idea? Well, it's, it's why I call the United Party BC Light, BC NDP Light. I mean, <laughs> they, they want the same policies as the NDP. They just want it, you know, lighter. And I'm, it's, forget it. It's, that's not the approach that needs to be. What's wrong with that approach? Well, it's, it's the approach they want, but you know, you've got three parties all fighting on the left side of center. And as I've said to you before, right? Three less doesn't make it right. Okay. okay. Now, let me ask you this about Airbnb just in in general, though, in principle. Like, I take your point. You think this should be municipal jurisdiction. Let municipalities figure it out. But you can't deny that there are a ton of Airbnbs operating in this, in this province that have taken homes off the market that people would like to live in, right? So why? Lot, I've heard from a lot of people said, by the way, the reason that has happened is people don't want to rent out long term anymore because the landlords, they, they, the, the government's tilted the playing field in favor of the tenant so much and they can make more money on Airbnb with their property anyway. So why would they do it? But well, I, I can tell you, uh, if you were renting a place and you had somebody that was going to come in for a year or two years or three years, be a good tenant, be paying on time, be going through this, uh, why wouldn't you take that? You'd want to take that. But you now have landlords, and I've heard from landlords right across the province that have, that have left the market, said they do not want to rent out because there is problems with the policies that have been brought in by this NDP government. And so they're looking at other options. They're saying, hey, wait a second, maybe I could do an Airbnb and make a little bit of money that way. Yeah. So yeah. the problem we have with Airbnb, the source of it is because of government policy, not because suddenly you know people have caught on and thought they want to do Airbnbs. But I can tell you, you know, most renters that I've talked to, most people who are, who would like to rent, would love to have long-term, consistent renters and not have to worry about people coming and going or damaging the place or anything else. That's what they would like to have. But it's because of these rules, it's become so difficult. And uh, like I say, I just think this authoritarian approach and what EB does with bullying people is just not the approach okay, that we want. Final question for you. So you're, you're, I assume you're voting against this crackdown on Airbnb, you and Bruce Bandman, your That's conservative correct. colleague. Okay. What do you, yeah. and just, you, it should be left completely to the municipalities. The province should stay out of it. That's well, what you're saying? I think the province needs to actually work and support municipalities to achieve the goals that we need to have for housing. 
They need okay. to come in and they need to support things like water and sewer projects, upgrades to make sure that cost isn't passed on to new house owners. They need to come in and work with municipalities in terms of getting the regulations down and in place so that you can get construction started. They should come in and say, okay, how do we how do we create an environment where people want to have long-term renters as opposed to Airbnb? Let's solve all those problems before you come down with a hammer and a take of this authoritarian bullying approach. John, thank you for coming in today. Thanks for having me in. All right, let's talk about an airline flight from hell now. Imagine this now. You board your flight and you're sitting next to a crying, fussing child who screams and fusses throughout the entire flight. That's why an airline in Europe now has said they will offer passengers a choice. Adults-only seating. No kids allowed. Of course, you would have to pay extra for that. I've got Duncan D. standing by to discuss. First, have a listen to this report here. This is from Inside Edition. That ear-piercing scream is an unruly child on a transatlantic flight to New York. The passengers describe an eight-hour flight from hell with non-stop and nerve-jangling screaming and fussing. They even covered their ears to drown out the three-year-old. His mom was overheard telling flight attendants he has behavioral problems. Passenger Shane Townley shot the video. She kind of looked like she was used to it. He was climbing all over the chairs. He was uh, just screaming, would not let up. Uh, he was running up and down the aisles. Everybody was just kind of looking at each other like, oh, this is going to be a long flight. All right, let's discuss with my guest now, Duncan D. Duncan is an air travel expert and analyst. He is the former chief operating officer at Air Canada. Duncan, thank you for coming on. Thanks for having me, Mike. You bet. Okay, Duncan, I think we've all had an experience like this. You get on a plane, there's a fussy child in the seat next to you, in the row behind you, crying, crying screaming, carrying on. Yeah, it's happened to me. Yes, it can be annoying. Duncan, has it ever happened to you? It's happened to me many times, uh, and uh, it, I think it's one of those things that anyone who has flown, especially for uh, vacation, uh, to a leisure destination where kids are much more uh, present, uh, would uh, probably be able to uh, relate to. Yeah, and we've heard some horror stories, right, on social media. I guess you tend to see the worst of it. There there was a famous recent video of, of a little kid standing on top of a fold-down food tray, jumping up and down and shaking the seat of the passenger in front of him. We heard the famous viral video there of the kid who was screaming for hours on a flight from hell to Europe. It's usually not that bad, right? I mean, do you think we see the worst of it on social media? Look, I mean, I think social media really uh, blows many of these instances out of proportion. Uh, we tend to see the worst of it um, on social media. Those are, frankly, the ones that get the most hits. So, you know, it's not surprising that when those uh, incidents make uh, the top of the so social media charts, that, um, you know, many more of these uh, incidents come out of the woodwork. And so... You know, I think it's one of those things that just feeds off of each other. And uh, what would normally be acceptable uh, in some instances where, you know, maybe a baby ends up crying for um, a little bit of a long flight ends up becoming something that is uh, a social media phenomenon. 
And so, yeah, I mean, I think social media contributes to the angst that uh, travelers feel when they see um, misbehaving children or just children being children. Yeah, (laughs) kids will be kids for sure. Okay, Duncan, let's talk about child-free flights or adults-only flights. We've had some airlines have started to offer this. Corendon Airline, the first European airline, to offer this option to travelers. So this they are offering an, an adult-only zone on one of their flights. Passengers would be restricted to age 16 or over. It will cost an extra 45 euros each way. So I did a quick calculation. That's 65 Canadian each way. So I guess 130 Canadian for a return flight. Duncan, what do you think of this? Look, I mean, I think it's more of a marketing gimmick than anything else. Um, You know, I think that for most airlines, really from an operational perspective, restricting certain sections of of the aircraft to certain types of travelers is really very, very difficult to manage on a day of basis. You know, it's a a theoretically a, a nice thing to do. It's something that Airlines may think that they're able to do it, but, you know, when you're talking about a day of operating um, issue, you know, your ability to offer it 100% of the time will be extremely challenging. And, you know, I mean, let let me just give you an example. In many cases, children under two years old don't even have to uh, purchase their own seat. So they're sitting in the lap of their uh, parent. So in many cases, until the check-in process happens at the airport, the traveler doesn't even have to disclose or has not disclosed that they have a a lap child, a child that's sitting on their lap that's traveling with them. And so, you know, how do you manage that if you've got a full flight, for example, and that traveler is uh, pre-seated in a seat that that people thought was going to be child-free, but suddenly they've got a two-year-old, uh, a child under two years old that's sitting on their lap that, you know, no one knew about until they showed up at the airport. Yeah. So, I mean, those are, you know, day of issues that have to be managed. And to be able to offer people um, a child-free travel experience for an extra 40 euros or 65 Canadian dollars and then fail to do that at the airport, I think, creates a bigger problem. Yeah, and this is the first European airline to offer this option we've seen some airlines in asia have similar quiet zones or kids free zones on on some of these flights the, the other thing that occurred to me is is this actually going to solve any kind of a problem because i've read that some of the quiet zones they have on some of these flights or would be in sort of the first four aisles uh, uh behind uh, first class so i'm thinking well what if you've got a kid in aisle five causing a ruckus. I mean, how's that going to make any difference? Your thoughts? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you know, I mean, I, I think that we need to uh, be mindful. It's, it's basically like, um, you know, a lot of people don't like seeing um, children in, you know, fine dining establishments or certain restaurants. I mean, it, you know, it, it, it's one of those things that people like to uh, think uh, is, is easier said than done. But, you know, at the end of the day, an airline... Um, is not going to alienate a large proportion of their travelers. And, you know, when you're talking about leisure uh, airlines or leisure routes, a large proportion of those, those travelers are families. And, you know, just because you've got 
um, a business traveler who's a frequent flyer uh, five days of the week doesn't mean that they're not wanting to travel with their children on Saturday and Sunday. And so, you know, airlines are not going to go out of their way to alienate those travelers uh, who, who in many instances are very willing to pay, you know, top dollar to uh, fly in business class or first class with their families, you know. And so I think that, uh, I, I mean, I've heard of proposals before. There have been many, many instances where, for example, uh, mainline airlines have talked about banning children from first or business class, but it's never really worked. Yeah, I know it's interesting. So you don't expect to see Canadian airlines starting to offer this? No, I mean, I, I, I can't imagine any Canadian airline uh, would offer this, given the fact that, you know, where the uh, children travel most often are on leisure routes. Um, and, you know, leisure routes um, have, in many instances, flights that are just filled with families, you know, like uh, trips uh, that people take to uh, the sun destinations like the Caribbean, Mexico, the Dominican Republic and Cuba, places like that, those flights are filled with children. And so when you're, when you're saying you don't want kids on, in, in certain sections of the flights, you know, those flights tend to have very few kids to start with. So, I mean, the, the, the business routes during the middle of the week, you're not going to see many kids on those flights anyway. Yeah. So, you know, I think that this is really a marketing gimmick that an airline in Europe is thinking that they're able to get some mileage out of. And, you know, the fact that you and I are talking about it probably means they've somewhat succeeded. Yeah. yeah. Speaking to for, former Air Canada executive Duncan D. Duncan, OK, kids, unruly kids on an airplane. I guess that's one one annoyance some people will be familiar with. What are some others, though? Because I took a look at a recent poll on the 10 top 10 most annoying airplane etiquette violations by passengers, and an unruly kid really wasn't near the top of the list. The, the, the one that seems to came out number one in this poll was someone kicking the back of your seat. And, of course, then there's always the, the reclining, the, the, the seat reclining in front of you, fully reclined in front of you. Does that, do you think that bugs more people than a, than a, loud, than a noisy kid? Absolutely, Mike. I think that you've described two instances that drive people mad. Uh, so you've basically got the incidents where people are basically kneeing your your back uh, because they've placed their knee um, in the seat uh, the, the seat that you're sitting in. Or you know, uh, one that I've seen uh, quite often in the last couple of years is uh, somebody putting their foot on your armrest. You know, the person behind you putting their, their foot on your armrest, thinking that that's also their space. And so, you know, there are these instances. And, you know, one of the ones that actually has created quite a bit of um, anxiety on flights is travelers who um, are inebriated, um, you know, who have uh, taken a little bit too much uh, uh, pleasure on, on their trip and uh, annoying everybody as a result. So, you know, in, instead of banning kids, some airlines should think about banning some unruly adults. I love it. Duncan, thank you for coming on with your thoughts on this today. I appreciate it. Thanks, Mike. Thanks for listening to the Mike Smith Show podcast. Can't wait for the latest episode to drop. Tune into the show live from 9 to noon on 980 CKNW. Want to reach out to me personally with a question or comment? Send me an email, mike at cknw.com. Thanks again for listening.